Hello, friends. I'm Jeremy Hall, and this is the Kingdom Ethics Podcast, and I'm doing my best attempt to sound like I'm doing an intro from Joe Rogan, uh, because I know how podcast culture works, and I'm cool, okay? I'm cool. Ugh. Uh, hi, David. You're, uh, how much coffee is that for you this morning? Quite Jeremy? a bit. I am, uh, as always, blessed and highly caffeinated. And I, I'm also really excited because we're going to be talking about uh, The Righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust, your uh, first book coming out of your PhD project. So that's really exciting. Uh, many of my heroes and some of my favorite stories come from The Righteous Among the Nations. I've got a quote on my wall that sits at eye level directly in front of where my office chair goes with uh, one of my favorite quotes that comes from one of The Righteous among the nations but to get there uh, i think we should i'm gonna do another i'm gonna do another pop culture thing here uh we're gonna step into the way back machine and travel to the far off distant land of the early 90s as we emerge from the door of our time machine dear listeners there's a certain bright-eyed baptist in the big city young david I'm doing my best over here. Uh, can can yeah. you tell us? Okay, I'll, I'll pick up. I'll pick up there. <laughs> can you uh, tell us? Uh, uh, can you introduce us to the David Gushy of what, what year would it be? 1990 that you find yourself yeah. in New York? Actually, no. Uh, 1987. 87. Um, we moved. Yeah, we moved to New York in 87 to start at Union Seminary, uh, Upper West Side. Uh, Jeannie was pregnant, and uh, our first child was, was born in January of 1988, Ollie. So um, when when I started there in the PhD program, I thought I was going to write about um, the Cold War and peacemaking. But even during the time that I was there, the Soviet Union collapsed, and um all discussions about nuclear weapons and peacemaking, everything was thrown topsy-turvy, right? Nobody knew what was coming. So um, so I shifted gears on that, and as it came time to um, to move towards a dissertation topic, I, I, I returned to uh, an issue that had um, haunted me and attracted my attention since ninth grade, and that was the Holocaust. Now, if you're at Union Seminary in New York, you're in uh, a city with one of the largest Jewish populations in America, if not the largest, right across the street from Jewish Theological Seminary, um, with resources abundant, intellectual resources and library resources, uh, to study the Holocaust. So it was a perfect place to do it. Um, my uh, initial uh, exploration was a lengthy field exam. We do comprehensive exams at the doctoral level and at Union. Um, one of them was just like an essay. So I wrote a lengthy essay exploring what's called Holocaust theology, which is um, which is basically a body of, of writings, Jewish and Christian mainly, that were produced beginning in the 60s and 70s that basically took the Holocaust as the starting point for rethinking theology. Mm-hmm. And um, and some of the names associated with it, 
are long lost for people today. Most of our listeners would never have heard of it. Um, Richard Rubenstein and um, uh, Eliezer Berkowitz and Emil Stackenheim, Elie Wiesel, people know that name. Um, Paul Van Buren and Franklin Mattel, uh, Rosemary Radford Ruther, who is mainly known for her feminism, but she did some good work on this. I'm actually in bed, I'm in my alcove here looking at all of my books on the Holocaust, and I've got shelves and shelves of Holocaust theology. Um, and so I wrote a, must have been a 60 page uh, essay on Holocaust theology. And the problem with it, Jeremy, was I was meandering into a faith crisis because Holocaust theology, as I was exploring it, involves such a negation of um, traditional beliefs about God, God's involvement in history, uh, even about Jesus. Um, because the Holocaust theology, especially coming from, well, beginning from the Jewish side, but picked up from the Christian side, concluded that it was Christian triumphalism around Jesus that also is the ultimate seed for the Holocaust. Mm. You know, the old story that Jesus came as the Messiah of the Jewish people and the Jews, quote-unquote, missed him. Rejected. And ever since rejected him, and, and since then they've been being punished by God. with May his exile. blood be on us and our children. Right. All of that, the whole, all those tropes of Christian anti-Semitism. And so some in, some in the Holocaust theology community were essentially saying, essentially saying you cannot really hold anything like Christian theology and and be adequately responding to the Holocaust. Did how did your the, how did the faith tradition that you I, so you chose a Baptist faith experience after being uh, your early life in a Catholic home. And right. how did that and going to a, a Southern Baptist American seminary prepare you for a journey into Holocaust literature and theology? Not very well at all. No. Um, because the pietism, uh, I don't know, but just you and Jesus, love Jesus, mm-hmm. um, that part. That part was not quite sturdy enough, and then um, there had been no engagement until until Union with the, the deepest uh, um, challenges to Christian theology that were coming out of uh, Holocaust theology. In general, the evangelical world has not engaged Holocaust theology seriously at all. That's too um, dangerous. Is that we're our, yeah. the way that evangelicalism is structured relies so much on certainty that you cannot bring the Holocaust in. It's just, it's too explosive. Uh, it's also another reason why a book like the book of Job is hardly going to be at the top of any study list in evangelical churches or families or schools because it's just too explosive, too, too challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I was beginning to get worried about myself there and that would have been 1989, that I was I was afraid I was going to lose my faith. A lot of people don't know that that chapter of my of my life, but it was pretty scary there for a little bit. So I was at a conference in. I tell this story in in actually Gentiles of the Holocaust. I was at a conference presenting some not very good work from that field exam, and and being properly 
schooled by Holocaust scholars who knew better than I that I, that I was not doing very good work. But anyway, at that conference, <laughs> which was at Vanderbilt, um, I heard a presentation on the on the righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust, a small minority of Christians and non-Christians who were not Jewish, who risked their lives to save Jews from the Nazis. And uh, the guy who was presenting was a, a, a sociologist named Lawrence Barron. We're talking 19, that was 25, no, 30 years ago now. And, um, and he presented what he had learned about the motivations of Christian rescuers. So he had done some interviews and others had begun doing some interviews with, with rescuers because they're identified by name by Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, the Holocaust Museum and Research Center there. Mm-hmm. So in in Jerusalem to this day, though I think that they're probably done with the stage because everybody's aged out and died, but at least until recently, they were still identifying rescuers by name, nominated by Jewish uh, survivors and family to be honored in Yad Vashem. Apparently, the uh, honoring ceremony is beautiful. Uh, a tree is planted for each rescuer with their name uh, and a plaque underneath. Um, and they're given a medal that is put around their neck uh, that is inscribed beautifully with the Talmud expression, uh, he who saves one life saves the whole world. Just so wow. beautiful. Those ceremonies are, are, are beautiful. And uh, Yad Vashem, last time I checked, had something like 30,000 people that they had identified. So um, in the late 80s, researchers discovered that, hey, here is a treasure trove. If we can find some of these rescuers, we can interview them. And so a, a variety, not that many, you know, a dozen maybe researchers began scouring Europe and other places where these rescuers could be located and began doing studies of them. And um, kind of like, here's goodness. Goodness, can we, can we bottle what, what mm-hmm. made these people different? You know, we're talking about less than 1% by far of the Christian population of Europe uh, did anything to help Jews survive. And so, wow, what made them different? And so these researchers, and again, I have these books all around me with, with you know, right behind me are my Holocaust rescuer books. And um, so these researchers, you know, interviewed folks and, and, and did social psych instruments. And anyway, so Lawrence Barron was presenting at this conference what has been discovered so far. And he, he said this line that resonated so deeply with me. He said, Hey, um, I'm a Jewish person, and and as I interview and as we interview these these rescuers, we're getting a lot of religious talk, a lot of theology, and a lot of Bible quoting from a tradition that is not our own. It sure would be good if some Christian scholars would get into this research and help us here, because we think that there is some spe- some specific Christian stuff going on here that you can help us understand. And so was that so, was that the trigger? That was the trigger. It was oh, there have been few moments in my life that were as clear as that. Wow. As in drop everything that you're doing and do this instead. And so that's what I did. Um uh, I made a proposal to my committee that I do a dissertation about the the righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust. And so I worked on that for three long years, Jeremy, and that became my dissertation in my first book. Um, and, and I would say that what I learned in that 
study has in many ways shaped my entire life, my sense of vocation, and what I, I'm trying to accomplish with my students. So, what did you learn? <laughs> I, I was hoping you would ask. So thank you. Um, well, um, a couple things. Uh, one is that um, Christianity was not directly correlated with rescue. So just because somebody claimed to be a Christian did not mean that they would actually do anything. Um, and so I ended up using the language of it took a certain kind of Christianity to lead to rescue. Aha, okay, well, then you want to know what kind of Christianity was that? Because that's what we want. We want mm -hmm. that kind of Christianity. Um, and if I were to summarize it in a three-point sermon, it would be compassion, conviction, and courage. Um, you need a Christianity that that helps to form soft-hearted, compassionate people who respond to the suffering of others, even if they're not their nearest and dearest, even strangers. Um, you need a Christianity in which people are taught certain convictions that are ironclad for them um, and will motivate them to do something on behalf of other people. And so the best chapter of my dissertation, I think, is the one where I, uh, where I explore the religious motivations of Christian rescuers and identify six specific kind of themes that show up in interviews with rescuers. And it includes um, the, the belief in the intrinsic dignity and value of every life. Um, the, um, the teaching um, to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, the a sense of kinship with the Jewish people in particular, especially when the Jews are the ones that are being assaulted. Um, specific biblical teaching that that just got embedded in the hearts of people and, and they remembered them when they needed them, like love your neighbor as yourself, uh, we are our brother's keepers, uh, being the good Samaritan, things like that. Um, and then... Um, uh, a, a clarity that Nazism and everything about Nazism was uh, a violation of, of Christian moral principles. And then finally, uh, more of a, on the practical side, um, a, uh, a living spirituality of a certain kind of sturdiness so that um, people had the fortitude to do what was required. Right. So you might say that's like the jet fuel. <laughs> You know, you have the you can have the beliefs. One thing that is just very clear in the literature is a lot of people believed that it would be nice if somebody would help the Jews, mm -hmm. but they were not going to do it. Someone should they, do something. Someone should do something, right? Yeah, this is awful. Too bad. It's really sad. But you know, that's how how frankly a lot of us, including probably you and me, sometimes respond to the challenges of each moment now, like. That's too bad. Somebody should should work on the homelessness problem, right, or whatever, you know. So, um, compassion, so your heart is able to be moved. Conviction that enables you to tell right from wrong and to know that you're called to act, and then the courage to sustain action uh, once you're in it. Uh, and then you know the spiritual resources for all of the above. Um, and 
And so you might say that my sense of calling as a Christian ethicist was to produce people like that. Compassionate, convictional, and courageous. That's how studying the Holocaust and the rescuers shaped the rest of my career. The uh, quote that's on my wall from Paul, uh, she's Polish, Paulina uh, Kialuska. Um, so it's at eye level. So every time I look up from my desk, I read this. It says, the righteous didn't suddenly become righteous. That's the quote you have on your wall. Yep. That's so cool. Where'd you find that, Jeremy? I don't recall. <laughs> um, hmm. But I heard it. I, I heard it on the radio from an interview with her. And it's stuck in my mind. And when I, I, I've got quotes on my wall. I've got Bonhoeffer. I've got Kierkegaard. I've got MLK, um, other voices. And I've got hers. But hers is the one directly in front of me. And it, um, specifically, she yeah. reminds me that I have to decide today who I'm going to be when I'm needed. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, some biographies have been written of specific rescuers. Um, uh, you know, so some have become kind of famous in their own right, at least in that. I mean, the most famous rescuer is probably Oscar Schindler of Schindler's List. Mm -hmm. but, but what's interesting about him is that he he's an exception to that quote in the sense that he was not an especially good man. Um, he lived a pretty shady life. He was in uh, wartime Nazi occupied Europe to make a buck. Um, but something snapped for him when he saw um, how his essentially slave labor workers, how they were, they were going to be murdered. Hmm. Yeah. When, when he, when he, when he figured that out, um, he was moved to risk everything his money, his enterprise, and his life to try to save them. Um, so the majority of the cases I read about were not like Schindler. They were just good-hearted, regular folk like Corey Ten Boom, another famous rescuer, um, who was in Holland and was just kind of salt of the earth, devout Dutch Christian type. In a sense, just the salt of the earthiness of that family prepared them for what they were to do. Yeah, it, it, um, reading that book, yeah. I read that book along with Knight in our Holocaust section in middle school, and which is too early. Um, but I don't know where yeah, the right place early. is. I was introduced too early. It was the seventh grade when we had early. our Holocaust yeah. uh, unit. Um, but yeah. I, remembering, and I've gone back to her book and the books about her several times, that for that family, it was almost like, of course, they were going to be rescuers. Yeah, and what's interesting was, when you actually studied that book closely, as I did for my dissertation, there was a distinctive kind of Dutch Reformed piety that they had going that uh, not, I mean, not all the Dutch Reformed exhibited that it would lead them to action. In fact, I just read um, 
a major new book on uh, rescue in uh, Holland and Belgium. And that book by uh, Robert Braun called Protectors of Pluralism. I wrote about it in Baptist News Global. Um, that book showed that just because somebody was just reformed didn't mean that they were going to be involved in rescue. But, but this family, this family had a really intense version of Dutch reformed faith that included pretty much all of the elements that I mentioned and that I discovered in my book, uh, including, you know, the deep Christian piety, the, um, the, philo-Semitism, the pro-Jewish theology, um, the clear repudiation of Nazism as anti-Christian idolatry, um, a belief in the sacred worth of each life, you know, that kind of thing. Um, clear biblical formation. So, um, so what that book did, let me talk about it first professionally, it came out at just about the time that, like, Schindler's List came out, and the Holocaust Museum opened in 1994, which was the year that my dissertation came out, you know, so the timing, uh, the timing was perfect. Um, there was a lot of interest in those lists and the Holocaust Museum and other films and stuff. So the book, um, it was seen as inspiring. It was widely reviewed, especially for a first book. Um, Jewish and Christian audiences asked me to come speak about it in a variety of settings. Um, so it really helped to launch my career. The one thing I would say to junior scholars or people on the way is if you have a dissertation of general interest and then you learn how to make the most of it, it can really launch your career. My career is inconceivable apart from that book. Mm. Um, speaking appearances, it all became became part of the routine rhythm of my life. And, and also the Jewish-Christian relationships that were formed during that time are still operative in my life. Um, which is so rich and so meaningful. Um, and I still teach Holocaust and genocide studies. I have a class going right now in Macon on that. So that was, you know, 30 years ago. Um, but I would also say that um, that the, the moral vision that came out of that book um, continued to fire me up to want to nurture that kind of Christian. And so everywhere I went, I was, um, everywhere I have gone, I have attempted to communicate something of that vision. My, my, uh, my new relatively recent book on great moral leaders is in a sense, another foray into moral greatness. Right. Right. And how do we get people, how do we get people to, to catch moral greatness? Kind of like a, um, like a disease that you want to get, you know, mm-hmm. catch the moral greatness, you know, uh, you want to have that vector spread, you know? Um, but uh, I think I've become somewhat more pessimistic as an older fellow. Um, and the Trump years have contributed to this. And so I am I am actually under contract now with Erdman. My next, not the next book, which is on Joe, but the book after that, is going to be a revisiting of the Holocaust. Okay. And um, what I'm going to do in, in this case now is to ask not about the 1%, but about the 99%. Uh, and especially about the Christians who went all in with Hitler and Nazism and even with genocide. I'm going to ask what went wrong with them. 
So I'm going to flip the question and go, and this may be my last book. I don't know. Doubt it. I, I, I seem to write <laughs> like breathing, you know, but the last book that is on my horizon right now, let's just say that, is to flip the question and ask 75 okay. years after the, after the Holocaust, um, what went wrong? with the majority as opposed to what went right with the small minority. Um, I wasn't really ready to ask that question in 1990, but I, I feel ready to ask it now. It's a terrifying question. It is. It is. And in some ways it's the more relevant question because it's the majority and it's what actually happened. And the main story of the Holocaust is Christian Europe, quote unquote, turned on its Jewish minority and attempted to, to kill every last one of them, led by Germany, but with collaborators all over Europe. Yeah, we want to talk about the, the successes of the, the righteous among the nations and glorify the rescuers. But the, the main narrative is a story of Christian disaster and failure. That's right. And everybody who wrote about the rescuers understands that. Um, and like, I think, I mean, the people who started the honoring and writing about the rescuers were Jewish. I think, in retrospect, that study of the rescuers beginning in the 80s, 70s and 80s, was part of the process of grieving the Holocaust in the Jewish community. It's kind of like um, well, if you have a family member murdered, but you learn that there was somebody uh, who tried to prevent it. And so the main story is you had a family member murdered. But the sub story and the thing that might be able to give you a little bit of hope is that there was somebody who tried to prevent it. Yeah. Does that make sense? That, that's, right. that's, uh, that's like the uh, Mr. Rogers advice look for the helpers look for the helpers um and looking for the helpers both gives you hope and it it also shines clear light on the failures of the non-helpers um and it gives you a clear idea as to what is right and what is wrong and how you can you know how how you can do what is right um but i do think it was part of the jewish community's grieving process it's almost like um, instead of looking at the pitch blackness of all the murder, sometimes by honoring the rescuers, there was, well, these, there was a book called When Light Pierced the Darkness by Nakama Tech. It was a little bit of like a candle in the dark. Um, but the candle in the dark, I understand, and I'm glad that I, I studied the candle in the dark, but I want to understand the darkness too. Right. And I and and I understand what went wrong in the Christian mind and soul to give us Auschwitz. Um, and so I'm going back to the beginning, uh, and I'm going to look at um, Christian direct Christian involvement in preparing the preconditions for the Holocaust, and then in executing uh, every stage of the Holocaust to see what we can learn from that. Um, and I'll be I'll be honest that the Trump years, and this is going to enrage our conservative. Um, listeners if we have any but the the trump years have have helped to get me here because there have been moments in these years where i have seen 
um, especially at some of the rallies in the 2016 campaign, um, the kind of baying for blood um, mob mentality of all those nice, good Christian white people that has reminded me of some of what I studied in, in relation to Nazi Germany. And um, this, you know, hatred of the other and the xenophobia and whipping up the crowd, uh, hit them again, hit them harder. Um, you know, yeah. That, and Trump, and, you know, Trump himself did stuff like that when he was giving those speeches from the rallies in 2016. Um, in fact, I have said privately that I think one of the odd mercy of the pandemic, summer and fall of 2020 has been that uh, the rallies have been much constrained. There have been fewer of them, and um, crowds have had to be smaller. And so the opportunity for kind of mass chaos and mayhem um, because of huge crowds uh, riled up has, hasn't been there as much. And now the election's about to be over. So, so that's been a mercy. Um, anyway, uh, so I... I but I also think, you know, the surfacing of rank, obvious racism and xenophobia, sometimes accompanied by violence among the kind of the white nationalist right in the, in the U.S. over these years has made me, has made me you know, want to return to study of the, of the uh, 30s uh, with fresh eyes and go ahead and confront that. So that's what I'll be doing. That, that will be the project after the Book of Job. That's exciting and frightening. <laughs> to return to that darkness is intimidating. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I go back. I'll, I mean, I'll be in my 60s when I do this project. And I mean, it isn't going to take my faith away. I was concerned about losing my faith way back in yonder 1988 or whatever, right? You know, but, but I, I think we've had some warning in this time and who knows, uh, we may not be out of the woods yet, but we may. Um, but I think we've had some warnings that, are, that about what can happen in any supposedly, even in any supposedly Christian society where people lose their bearings and succumb to, uh, demagoguery, violence, race, hatred, and so on. And, so I'm ready to go back and, and, and look at the 1920s and 30s uh, with fresh eyes. There you go. It's a, it's another call to formation is how I hear it as a pastor. One of the, one of the quotes on my wall is from a, a man named Paul Hill. And it says, faith is caught more than it is taught. Right. Um, but yeah, and so also is is uh, everything else so so the you might say the virus of turning christianity into a path to say white supremacism or racism is also caught mm -hmm. right um <laughs> so you might say that what i want the local pastor to do is to be fully aware of the destructive viruses that are out there and provide um vaccines and antibodies to the flock so that they are not not going to be infected boom there you go tweet that one 
Exactly. We we certainly will. Well, David, thank you. I look forward to I look forward to that project. That's that's going to be exciting. Um, thank you, David. You are very welcome, Jeremy. Thank you for um, going on this journey with me, and um, and hopefully, uh, hopefully that the study will will provide some of those antibodies that we need now and always. Amen. I will uh, post some links to uh, to the book "Righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust" and uh, to some of the things that we made mention of today. Thank you for spending some time with us, listeners. We will be back soon uh, continuing this journey of Gushy's Greatest Hits. I'll work on my uh, radio DJ morning roundup voice uh, for our hit list as we count them down. Um, (laughs) (laughs) As always, thank you for listening. This has been the Kingdom Ethics Podcast, a production of Mercer University's Center for Theology and Public Life. We are on Twitter. We are on Uh, Facebook, David is all over the internet. A a great hub if you want to find more of his work and uh, more about his ministry is davidpgushy.com and you can find um, ways to contact me and find my information at revjeremyhall.com. So thank you for joining us uh, today and on this journey. We'll be back with you soon. Thanks. Thanks.